0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Mountain Stories podcast. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College. My name is Brent Olson, and along with Jeff Nichols, uh, we direct the Institute for Mountain Research in Salt Lake City. And our goal is to think deeply about mountains, how we connect with those mountains, and how we might build stronger relationships to each other as we use and play and work and, and think through mountain issues. This summer, we've had the fantastic opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Shomai Poo on her project, Mountains and Stories, Building Community Among Asian Refugees and Immigrants.
1: We are excited to have Kevin Wen with us today. Kevin grew up in West Valley. He is currently a graduate student at the University of Utah. He studies public health there. Uh, he is also a squad leader and a rescue diver with the Salt Lake's search and rescue team. And he holds an active role in many different organizations. I will now turn the mic over to Kevin.
2: Um, well, my name is Kevin Nguyen. Uh, my Vietnamese name is Kang, and I believe it means brave. And I think a lot of the stuff that I get to do and sort of the life experiences that I've been through, I have to really be brave to be able to go through it. Um, I use pronouns, he and him, his. And I grew up in the city of Salt Lake and now currently a resident, a longtime resident of West Valley City, still living in my parents' basement. Um, But, you know, family is such a a big part of, of who I am and of the culture as well. But growing up, really, it's it was um it was a very interesting experience, you know, growing up in a single parent household, going through this mix of uh, family turmoil with my parents getting divorced. And then, you know, my mom being um, an immigrant here, she came here during the, the Vietnam War and we really didn't have much growing up. It was uh, always a constant struggle between having money to pay rent or having money to eat food. Right. And I think that really shaped and gave me the experiences and why I do the things that I do now. Um, Because growing up, it was always, you know, going through these different types of struggles. And in hindsight, now I finally realized that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Santa Claus who brought us the food gift cards and the clothing and the toys. It wasn't just, you know, the tooth fairy bringing in money every, you know, every week or every two weeks. It's, The community really coming together to be able to like give that to my family and I think that's where my work with community started after I realized that but that is really a big part of who I am as a person um I am also a new uncle uh to a very beautiful niece her name is Avia and she really brings me a lot of joy and also an older brother of course to my younger sister and between my younger sister, my mom and my grandma, that's pretty much the core family that I that I have here in Utah. It's it's really cool to go through some of these experiences because like it really drives what I do now. And I I get to be in a position now where I get to then help people that are in need, whether that's through like search and rescue or through my work um in public health. And community health and leadership. People always ask me, what do you, what do, you do, Kevin? And I, I do too much. <laughs> so uh, professionally right now, I'm currently the community health worker specialist at the Utah Department of Health. And um, community health workers, if you don't know the term, they're just really trusted members of the community that sort of like what my family go through, they've lived these experiences. And so they know how to navigate the complex systems that our, our healthcare and our social services, right? And they're really the bridge between community and these type of services. And so I get to really work to expand and support and grow their efforts throughout the state of Utah. And we're making really, really good headway um, in terms of that. Also, I am a health educator at Salt Lake Community College. And in that space, I get to help facilitate some diabetes prevention courses, really focusing on the, the chronic disease aspect of things, being able to talk about uh, different topics and looking at wellness from like a holistic lens, you know, working on not only like the physical wellness, but also be able to help facilitate some stress management courses, uh, be able to facilitate some behavioral change courses there, and really working to improve the, the wellness of the employees at the college. So that's my professional work. Uh, volunteer work. Of course, I am a really proud member of our Salley County search and rescue team. I am a squad leader as part of the team and also a rescue diver where I get to um, be on call all the time. Right, Our team is full volunteer. We're on call 365 days a year, seven days a week at all hours of the day, um, regardless, to be able to work to bring people home. And that's one volunteer opportunity I get to do. I'm currently also the chair of Salt Lake County Mayor Jenny Wilson's um, CODA, the Council on Diversity Affairs Health Subcommittee. So, helping to drive health initiatives and health efforts for the community, for the county. And I also sit as the coordinator and chair for my city, Healthy West Valley, the Healthy West Valley Coalition, where it's a coalition that's brought together by community members like myself with organizations that want to support the community and working to drive health initiatives in the city of West Valley. Uh, So, I I get to do a variety of different things. Really, our, our most recent awesome thing that we've been working on is. There was a really profound and inspiring and awesome individual. Her name is Margarita Satini, and she did a lot of community work, and she was working on leading a community-oriented approach to address racism as a moral and public health crisis. Unfortunately, we know that, really, COVID-19 has had a big impact on our racial and ethnic minority populations, and COVID-19 took her away from us. And it was, you know, right in between our first and second meetings of this group. And so recently I started to bring together those members again in her name and helping to spearhead an initiative, spearhead this group to be able to work with cities to recognize that within their policies and programs to make these changes. And we're working with the city of Salt Lake right now to do that. We just went through writing a declaration, helping to write a declaration in partnership with them and the city council and uh, the racial commission on Police, policing there, we're making good, good way. And I think within hopefully within the next month or two, we're gonna be able to have that declaration be announced as an official declaration for the city. And then from there, continue our work uh, with other cities to declare racism as a moral and public health crisis. So those are really my current initiatives, um, <laughs> volunteer-wise. I went to a little elementary school called Redwood Elementary. It's off of Redwood Road, that's why it's called Redwood Elementary. And uh, yeah, there there were really struggles. You know, when I was in elementary school, I was in ESL till I was second grade, and so trying to fit in and learn English, and also just try to be part of, I guess, the crowd. When you know, when you're younger, you just want to belong. Right? that was the big thing, and. I think a lot of kids that go to that school experience what I experienced where, you know, typically when you start school, right, you, you know, you get to go and you get a new backpack and you get new pencils and new shirts. And for many of us, you know, we came from really poor families that we didn't have the financial circumstances to be able to buy those new things. And so oftentimes it was, you know, wearing the same three pairs of clothes throughout the year to go to school or not having a backpack or, having to, you know, get free lunch, you know, that was a big thing too. And I remember that was a, um, that was a big struggle for, for my family. You know, my mom didn't really understand English too much at that time, or even just had to read English as well. And so I was the one having to fill out my own free lunch waivers, or my school fee waivers at a prime age of 9, 10, 11 years old. And I think it just, I think that just shows like a lot of where our community is too. Like it's having that tenacity, just being able to adapt, right. And just working through it because that's just what you have to do. So I think I remember those as like my, my big challenges. And also when I was younger as well, um, I wasn't too tall. I wasn't too like big. Right. And so bullying was something that I experienced for, um, a little while and it was good. Because I think it gave me the perspective of like, wow, this is what kids go through, and to then be the opposite of being like now a mentor and talking against those type of things, right? Uh, really, those were the the main struggles growing up and and uh, going through elementary school. Yeah, I think the microaggressions I guess is common in Asian cultures. Uh, going up, and growing up during school, people are like, "Hey, do my mouth homework," or do my, you know, computer science homework, like, you're Asian, you should know this stuff, right, you should know this stuff, you're Asian, uh, and it was mostly within, like, the educational sphere, you know, where I've experienced that, even starting in elementary, too, and then throughout junior high and high school and college, and I guess growing up, and didn't recognize those as microaggressions, you know, I've always been, I guess, good at those things, and so I thought people were just saying that because I'm good at those things. And I realized it was because, you know, they were like, stereotyping me um, because I am Asian. And I think for me, as I guess later in stages of life, you know, like through high school and through college, I think that put like a lot of pressure on me. Right. To like perform and excel because of the expectations that society puts. And also, I think um and I don't think it's like my mom doing this, but, you know, Asian parents are always so critical about education. Right. And you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be this type of person. You have to be this. And that put a lot of pressure because, you know, uh, my mom wanted me to go into medicine. Like I feel like a lot of my other Asian friends experience the same thing. Like You need to be a lawyer. You need to be an engineer. You need to be a doctor. And that put a lot of pressure on me because that's not something something that, yes, I did explore because I wanted to, but I think it was also partially not because I wanted to, but because of the pressure that my mom put on me. And I remember having a conversation with her about this too, where it's like, look, mom, I don't think there's something that I want to do. I want to be able to have the autonomy to go out and do something. But not only that is having your support, regardless of what I do. And my mom has really been just, just really this supportive person. After that conversation, she opened up and was saying, you know, she's sorry for putting that pressure on me and that no matter what I did as a person, she would always love me. And maybe I should have brought up this conversation sooner, but it was really awesome to hear my mom say that. And I think that was when I was like, ah, I can do whatever it is and still have the support of my family. But I know of a lot of other, you know, families and friends that still have that sort of structure where it's, you know, this extreme pressure from your parents to to do these type of things. And I know that that can cause a lot of conflict, right, and issues. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I heard a lot of like a similar stories um from my uh, Asian Chinese American friends, you know the kind of uh, pressure uh, their parents put on, on them because of you know the expectations, right? Yeah. Model minority. Yeah. Go to law school. Go to medical school. Yeah. And, and go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, yeah. You get a you get an a A minus, and what is that little thing next to you, the A? How come there's that right? And or how come you got a 3.9? And I mean, it's just such extreme pressure. And especially if you're someone that's growing up and trying to learn to, you know, ident- like figure out who you are and then having this additional pressure on, I mean, it's a lot.
1: I wonder uh, what that, well, where it comes from, So you know, this uh, emphasis on education. Uh, I wasn't born here. I grew up in China. I have this similar kind of a pressure, so uh, always the emphasis on education. In Chinese culture, there is a saying that uh, nothing can be compared to education, so education is a priority um, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Uh, Parents would do whatever they can do to send their kids to college if if they can. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, I don't know where that kind of uh, um, like priority on education comes from.
2: Yeah, oh. yeah, I'm. I'm not sure either. Now that I think about it, for me, I guess maybe it's because my mom realizes like education is such like a a key determinant of you know financial and. And with financial other, you know, good outcomes, positive outcomes, right? Like we grew up without a lot of money. My mom didn't graduate high school. She was a single mom supporting four people, taking this loan to pay for that loan, using this loan to pay for this. And then it's just, you know, building up all this credit card debt. And I think she was really just, she realized that, you know, education is going to be the thing that opens up doors to be able to have a little bit more financial wellness and then not be able to. Mom's like, you're not going to be poor, right? You cannot be poor because, you know, I want you to have food to eat. I want you to not have to worry about taking four credit cards to pay for basic necessities. I want you to have money to buy diapers for your kids, things like that. So I think that, for me, was the big driver of, like, get an education, get an education. Like, do well, do well, do well, so that I don't have to go through the same struggles that, my mom and my family did, but I think from maybe like a cultural perspective, I'm I'm not sure why. That's a really good question. Like
1: uh, in China, in the past, historically, right, all the officials were going uh, through the tests, right, the imperial tests to become officials. So education was key there. So you have to get education and to be able to rise up to the top of the, um, I think, uh, social structure, right, mm-hmm. uh, the social ladder. We are probably similar in many ways. My parents are farmers, so uh, in Chinese culture, farmers are at the lowest social as in calendar or something on the bottom of the society yeah right and so and education is probably the only way for their children uh, to what they call shed their um farmer's skin right yeah. and to have a different uh life different life and uh not to be poor right in that aspects uh both my parents and your mom share some, yeah, similarity there. But I do say that there is a cultural aspect in that because it's ingrained um, uh, in Chinese people that education uh, is important. Mm-hmm. It's the Chinese power. <laughs> so everything is lower uh, than getting an education.
2: Yeah. Did you experience a lot of, like, the pressures as well from, like, your parents? And how do you navigate um,
1: Pressures from my parents, yes, especially my mom, because uh, uh, she was the second daughter in the family. She didn't get the opportunity to go to uh, high school as she hoped. She, she was very intelligent, and she did really well at elementary school. But after that, uh, my grandpa passed away because of starvation during the Great Famine. My big uncle was at school at that time, and uh, her big sister was at school at that time. So as the second daughter, she didn't get the chance um, to continue her education, so she put uh, all her hope (laughs) of getting an education on me, so the biggest daughter in the family. Uh, yeah, definitely pressure from my mother. Not so much from my father. Uh, my father is pretty comfortable um, of being a farmer because, yeah, probably because he is a son in the the only son in the family, and he is so loved. I went to a uh, boarding school for high school. I remember in the class we had uh, like uh, students from all kinds of a background, uh, but only a very small number of students uh, uh, were from the countryside like me, right? Uh, Because they excelled (laughs) at school. Um, And uh, in the same class we also had students uh, who come from uh, working class families working class is a little higher uh, than farmers mm-hmm. family uh, and um, you know um, children of higher officials in the county and in the city so it's a mix maybe um so definitely so is it kind of uh, very interesting hierarchy. I <laughs> students, social status in that class. I think uh, affected me very emotionally, um, and uh, the teachers' attitudes toward uh, you know people from different um, social status uh, affect me uh, as well. So I think uh, I have developed. Uh, maybe a sense of inferiority, uh very low self-esteem in high school because of that. And it took me a very long time uh, to unlearn that. Yeah. Uh, my education um in the graduate program in China, uh where I was introduced to a feminist uh ideas. Yeah and my education in the master's program in Georgia State um, helped tremendously um, for me to honor that sense of infuriosity. So I think very similar to right, uh, how kids who come from poor families, who come from immigrant and refugee families um, experience here in the U.S. Yeah. So, Yeah, so when I heard your story uh, growing up in West Valley City and and going to, you know, school, I think I had an understanding of how you felt. Mm. So
2: Yeah, thank you for sharing your story.
1: Yeah, thank you for bringing your stories um, to this project too.
2: I guess my connections with the mountains started with my connection to the to the hills um, that are from the parks in West Valley. You know, growing up I we went up to the canyons maybe probably in the span of, you know, 10 years maybe like 2 3 times, right? I wasn't a frequent canyon person, not because I didn't want to go, but because we just didn't have the time or the money to go. And for me, it was, okay, well, I don't get the mountains, but I get the West Valley City Parks. And I get, uh, there was this, there's this lake here called Decker Lake. And there was this, there's this big hill that comes off of the overpass. And we just, you know, ride our BMX bikes with no brakes because, you know, all our brakes are broken off. And, you know, we stopped using the, our our, our shoe to stop the bike. And you know, we ride up on the road to the overpass and then ride down that hill and pretend we're on, you know, mountain bikes. And I guess that's where really my, my love for biking and also being outside started. You know, when we when we were growing up, we didn't have money for things like Xbox or PlayStation. So we just went outside to play. We played in the dirt. We play pretend building sand castles and, you know, climbing trees and just um, you know, going through Bushes and going exploring, going to Decker Lake. And I guess as I grew up and had the opportunity to go play in the mountains, whether that's going with my my friends who have cars, uh, eventually I got my own car, senior year of college, and that really helped with providing access to these mountains. And so I guess I connected with the mountains because of just my childhood connections with the hillsides of the parks that I got to play in, and the dirt that I got to roll in, and the, you know, the stinky Decker Lake that I waded through to go try to. <laughs> there was, <laughs> there was um, there was carp. We can see the carp swimming in the shallow water. Of course, we didn't have fishing rods, and being kids, we're like, well, how do we, how do we catch these things? And so we're like, I know, we'll, we'll wade in the water with big trash bags, and we'll. Scoop them up. <laughs> of course, that was a bad idea because we got halfway out and then we got stuck. And we're like, oh my gosh, I can't pull my shoe out of the water to catch this carp. And so we lost our shoes in the lake. My shoes are still in there somewhere. But I think it's just like experiences like that where, you know, it's just really organic and we just got dirty and out there. And that really connected me with nature and the mountains. And I guess now it's more of a connection because I've, you know, taken my biking from biking throughout, you know, the little trails here in the valley or the hillsides to now mountain biking. Right. And the awesome trails we have here in the Wasatch. And not only that is you not know, only am I um a participant in outdoor recreation, but I also get to help people through my search and rescue efforts and being able to um take care of people who get hurt. Right. And and be be that person who who brings them down the mountain and safely back to their families. So there's a lot of good connections there um, in terms of the mountains and I. I think it's a place of solace and and calm for me. I love just going and hearing the sound of the dirt crunch. I would just listen to the sound of the dirt crunching, and that's therapeutic for me. Or going out and then just stopping and just spending, you know, five, 10 minutes just to listen. And oftentimes you're not listening to anything because it's so quiet. And in my life, it's always chaos and always so noisy. And so the mountains for me is a place of quietness and calm where I go to just to breathe, right. And to just really soak all this in and, um you know i feel like for me i'm um, right now being able to do big things and when i go in the mountains i feel really small and to me that's that's just something you know like wow like this is just our wasash mountain range imagine all the mountains in the world and how much unexplored space there is and how really it's just we're just one small speck in this circle of life you know lion king reference but it's awesome to just just be up there um I guess solace is the word for it. Yeah, my mind just keeps on coming back to that word, place of solace.
1: Do you have a favorite trail, biking trail, hiking trail in the mountains or somewhere?
2: Favorite is hard. I do have a a least favorite. I can tell you that much. (laughs) My least favorite is Mount Olympus, the Mount Olympus trail. One is because that's where we run our fitness tests. It just sucks just going up there like, oh, my gosh, my leg's burning. Uh, But two is we spend a lot of time up there during the summertime because it's number one west-facing, so it gets extremely hot. Um, You know, there's big elevation change for a small amount of space, like distance. And so, you know, when we get called out on July 15th at 2 p.m., and it's 103 outside, but then on that rock, it's 110 it really tests you as a person of, "Oh my gosh, why?" you know? Um, but it's good. So I guess that's my least favorite trail. My most favorite trail, as of current, is there's this trail called the Lost Lad," and it's a mountain bike trail, and it's up here behind um, the capitol and behind the avenues. And it it takes a little bit to get up there, but I like it because one, there's not a lot of people. And two is just an absolute blast. Just coming down on the bike. There's little jumps, little features. You're up there at the top in this meadow, or we're seeing like the whole valley. And it's just, it's just a good time. Um, so the lost lad is probably my favorite mountain bike trail for hiking. That's a tough one. I get to hike a lot of trails, not only for recreation, but as part of my volunteer job. And I guess one trail that I really like is um, just the Bells Canyon up to that first reservoir. I feel like that one is a very easy and mellow hike, but you get to go and see a really awesome sight, um, you know, being around that reservoir. And, you now I've been able to take, like, people out on that trail who, are, who have never been hiking before, right? And I think that trail gives you a good experience of, you know, what hiking is and the awesome things that you can see here in the, in the valley. And it's close by. I feel like, you know, you don't have to drive too far up the canyon. It's right at the mouth of Little Cottonwood there. Well, my motto for biking is the more you climb, the more you get to go down. <laughs> so I love both. Cause I know it's like, oh man, I just gonna go a little bit more. Cause if I go a little bit more, that means like, uh, yeah, I get that extra turn in, or uh, there's that really big rock garden. It's gonna suck going up, but it's gonna be so fun going down. So I'm gonna go up it. Yeah, that's I like both. There's a experience to both, I think. And really, that's mountain biking has taught me that too. It's going like going uphill. It's yes, physical, but a lot of it is mental push. Being in that zone, being in that, you know, that burn, your legs are burning, your lungs are your, your lungs are just sucking up air as much as they can, right? But mentally you're like, all right, I can do this, right? And I see how see how much I can push myself. And really that is carried over to a lot of like, you know, professional and volunteer work that I do is like your mindset behind it is so crucial, right? To excel at years ago i i went to vietnam and it was just just really the most amazing experience uh i everything about it was just so awesome just being there seeing my family who i don't i have a lot of family over there but i don't remember right i didn't remember what they looked like i mean i I talked to them on the phone but just seeing oh wow there's my uncle there's my auntie there's my cousins these are my you know, little cousins and nieces. And I mean, it's just like so cool to to meet everyone and be like, wow, this is my family. And everyone was just so open to, to me coming over there. And really a big part of that, too, was like the language. Over here, I tried to speak Vietnamese so I can make sure I, I can speak with my parents and my grandma. But when I went over there for the two weeks that I was there, I felt like my Vietnamese got taken to like the next level. 'Cause that's what you just have to speak. And it's very interesting going to the places I don't I don't exactly look Vietnamese. Um and so people over there they think I'm not Vietnamese and so they try to speak to me in broken English and then I speak to them in Vietnamese and they're like, what? And they're just like what? we just like start talking and communicating and it's it's really fun. Uh it's over there when I went to, you know, the the food, that's one thing that I miss. The food over here, you know, for breakfast. I'm a big food person. I love food, but for breakfast, right, you eat you know, this morning. I had oatmeal and some eggs and some yogurt. Rinse and repeat that. Over there, you you know, you walk two minutes and you're at just this street food vendor place, just selling homemade noodles. And you just get a big bowl of noodles with a lot of veggies in there and just really good broth. And then you get, um, usually, at least the places that I went to, when you buy a coffee, they give you a coffee, and then they give you an iced tea. So then you get this big bowl of noodles, coffee, and iced tea. And it was amazing. And that's what I just eat for breakfast. And I just miss that so much. And just being able to reconnect with just, like, the culture as well, too, and just seeing how it really is. You know, I I, I watched, my grandma loves watching YouTube videos of, of Vietnam of people cooking and such like that. And so going over there to be able to see that in real life. And be able to be part of all that, we rented a scooter and just driving around over there in your scooter and it's like, this is crazy. Um I remember when we um we first got there, we were like trying to cross the street. Like where's the where's the light? Or is there a <laughs> there's no crosswalks over there's no such thing. You just okay like you literally just walk. You just go into traffic and you just nope, don't run or don't make any sudden movements. Just walk a normal pace, predictable, and people move around you like, OK. So then we walk over there and just let a bus coming out of nowhere, swerving around you, scooters, cars. And you just that's what that's what you do That's what you do over there. It's really cool to just sit down and have, you know, dinner with my family over there and going shopping with my my auntie and my uncle over here it's you go shopping for groceries maybe once a week right or twice a week over there it's every day You you go out and you walk five minutes and you're at this market and it's just whatever the farmers bring in and that's what you buy and that's an everyday thing so it was really cool to experience that and just go through and the fruit too i mean it was just next level you know eating the fruit and just having the food so fresh. Like over here, I, I like going to the gym and such. I was like, oh, I'm just trying to see and go over the gym over there. <laughs> and it was funny. You, you go to the gym and um, everything is rusted because of just how humid it is. So they just have all the doors open. And then when, before you go into the gym, you take off your shoes. <laughs> take off your shoes, you put out the door to the gym. And then uh, I guess it's like a thing, like if, you know, if you're a dude over there, you take off your shirt. And that's what you do, right? And so I was working out in there with my shirt on. They're like, "How come you don't have your shirt off?" Yeah, I guess that was the thing in that gym. And so uh, it was it was really cool to to experience that over there. Um, just a lot of really really fun moments, and it was it's, it was interesting as well because my family over there does they do extremely well and not only in like vietnam standards but in like american standards they do well when i went over there i went over there with um um my previous partner's family and her family was didn't do so well and so i got to experience that dichotomy of like wealthy right where wealthy where it's like you go they live in like a penthouse and they have made and those type of things to being in the countryside where we lit things by candlelight and we have no doors or windows just mosquito nets and you sleep on the floor and you um you know there's no running water right you bathe using a bucket and so I got to experience both sides of it and that was a very very eye-opening part of that and really connects me to, like, some of the experiences here, too, when I spent my time doing, like, homeless advocacy work, where it's literally kids and families who don't have a place to stay, who have, haven't eaten for four days, but literally up the street, there are multimillion-dollar homes and families and people driving $300,000 cars. I mean, that to me is just, I just don't get it. And so I got experience that in Vietnam as well, I guess. And also, you know, when you go eat at restaurants, uh, sometimes you have, like, kids like come up to you and, hey, um, you know, can I eat, have some of your leftovers? And also, I have lottery tickets or I have these like little trinkets. You know, can you buy some? And they're like eight, nine, ten years old, just out there working to try to provide for their families, and that also really touched me as well too. Um, yeah, very very interesting experience. I got to experience so many emotions, right? Of like sadness and anger and happiness and passion, and it was it was awesome. It was awesome. Growing up, my mom was when you're at home, you speak Vietnamese, and I think it's because she didn't she didn't speak English well. And I remember her and I talking and she just not because she was like super strict or because she was trying to be mean, but because she wanted to always have the ability to be able to talk to me. Because if I don't speak Vietnamese and she doesn't speak very good English and I just just learn English here, then I have I lose the ability to communicate with my own mom and only that my my family in Vietnam and also my grandma. And so, yeah, I I speak Vietnamese. Um, I think I speak Vietnamese fluently. I can't read or write it. It's extremely hard to read or write, but I can speak it. And I'm glad. I'm glad that I can speak Vietnamese, you know, not only because of the Vietnam experience, but because I can connect with my elders, right? like my uncles and aunties in the community.
1: What is the the, uh, structure of Vietnamese? Is it similar to English? Does speaking Vietnamese... Uh, give you a different uh, perspective on life and uh, things?
2: (sighs) That's a good question. Different perspectives. Yeah, in terms of being able to connect with those who don't speak English as well and being able to learn their stories. I think that to me is like such an important part of why like speaking Vietnamese is something that I want to be able to keep and be fluent at. I love to just connect with people and learn their stories and why and and talking to, you know, those who came over here during the Vietnam War and being able to ask their stories like what is what what was that like? You know, can you tell me more? Um what was your struggles? Do you go through similar things? And being also th- to connect with like my my friends' families, some of my friends' families you know, they, they're like similar to my mom where they don't speak as English as well. And so being able to connect with them because I think family and friends are, are very important. And so I want to be able to engross myself and you know the the families of my friends as well and, and whatnot.
1: What is the uh, Vietnamese word for mountain? Does Vietnamese have a word for mountain or
2: yeah. It's um Nui. And duck is like dirt. Nui and duck, yeah.
1: What does Nui mean? Just the sound, or uh, does it describe the image of a mountain? Uh, Does it um, convey the concept of a uh, mountain?
2: It's funny, it's such a simple word, but yeah, I don't know how to spell it because I don't know how to read or write Vietnamese. But to me, when I just listen to the word itself and you say, Nui, it's, it goes up. Nui, and similarly to the mountains, it goes up. And so I imagine Nui is like this rising and this um, you know, tall um, word. Growing up, my family were, were farmers too. And so they spent a lot of time in the hillsides you know, reflecting back of their experience in the hillsides, it might be a little bit different, but for me, like that's where I started with my love with mountains was hillsides too, right? And I know my mom's always wanting to, to go up to the canyons. And so it's been really cool to be able to now like connect my family with the mountains as well, right? Like come experience this with me. Although you're not mountain biking or hiking, just going up there and just seeing how spectacular it is. And this is like where we live, and then comparing that to, to Vietnam and the hillsides where they were, where they grew up. That's that's cool. Yeah.
1: This is the question I wanted just to ask earlier uh, when you were talking about um, your volunteer work. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a rescue story.
2: My story yes. um was happened a little while ago, probably in 2017. Um we we got a call out, I believe it was Sunday evening for someone who went into the water. And it was up Bells Canyon actually, near the waterfall there. And when we got on scene, I remember I was one of the the first teams on the mountain, and we met up with two of his friends, and his two friends were just like, "Hey, he's just right over there, right over there. We'll find him." And we're like, "Okay, okay," and you know, brought him down. And water, I learned how to. I learned to really respect water. You know, it's so strong, but yet yeah, so calm. And you know, thinking about. Just when it was, I believe it was in June, right? The runoff is really cold. That's when we had a lot of water as well that year. And it's been 40 minutes, you know, between them calling and our response time, getting up there, getting things rolling and getting the ball moving. And so we spent some time searching, you know, for him along the falls. And I remember, have you both ever been to that waterfall? Bell's Canyon waterfall. So... If you go late in the season, like summer, like uh August, September, you can almost go up to the falls and like touch the back of it. But this time it was literally the water was just shooting off of the waterfall because there was so much water. Right? It was just like coming down so fast. You can't even hear anything because it's so loud. That's when really my after seeing that, like my my gut sort of dropped. Cuz if someone went in that And we haven't found them now. It's in my mind, I'm beginning to switch gears from a rescue operation to a recovery operation. And so we went out the next day again in the morning, and it was an all day search as well, just searching along. And we happened to notice that um, in the middle of the falls, so what they had done was they tried to go up around to the top of the falls and then try to go across over it to the other side, I believe. And um and then when he went in, he went over the falls. And so looking at it, um that morning we've you know, they were doing helicopter operations as well too and you know anything about like water flow, it's in the mornings is generally a little bit more calm because at night it cools down so there's less melting and runoff. So in the morning we were able to see that he was in the middle of the falls, just like stuck there on some logs, and so we began our recovery operation, and we there was a lot of people up there in the mountain that day, probably 30, 40 people between not only our team, but we had firefighters up there. We had a few officers as well too working on building these what we call mechanical advantage systems, where we attach it to the logs, and we build what's called like a nine to one. So basically, if you're pulling one, you're pulling as the force of nine. And so we had multiple systems, nine-to-one systems on that, with three or four people pulling on that. So you imagine how much force is getting exerted on log to move it. So then we move that out of the way. He falls down and still in this little turbulent area underneath the falls. And then we went out again the next morning to be able to then try to um, get him out. We were able to recover him. And bring him back down. I don't know if you both get to interact with any of the Pacific Islander communities, but family is such a big part of that, right? And we were staged at an LDS church down there, and you know we went to the LDS church, and literally there was just like 40, 50, 60 people—families, friends, cousins, second cousins, people from out of state. Everyone was there, and I remember it was. know when you're up there and you're doing something like this your adrenaline is just you're just amped the whole time just okay we're working right we're in work mode we're working 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 then we get in there and you know where we went up there my commander started speaking to the crowd and then he started he just broke down and then when he did everyone did we were all just up there just crying and trying to express our condolences and the family was just so loving and they're like, this is not not the last time we're going to see him. We'll see him later or we'll see him later. And the whole family, you know, the whole group sang us a couple of songs, um, you know, in their native language. And every single one of them gave every single one of us a hug. So that day I got 20, 30, 40, 50 hugs, you know. And it was just felt with so much love and like compassion and just like hope where, you know, in, in, a, in a situation of sadness, you know, they realize like you know this is not the last time we're going to see you. We're going to see him and we're going to see him again later. There's something so it was just a wave of emotions from just adrenaline pumping despair to this like this like hope and happiness and love. Um, and that to me was really one of my most memorable rescues not only because of how difficult things were but because of also like the peace that i felt being with the family and it was just overall uh just a really really amazing rescue a recovery although you know um they did lose a family member and it's always hard yeah because you know this person is someone who is not only a family member but a friend, a brother, and uncle, and just to think like you know they were out there just just trying to have fun, just like anyone would, right, and then an accident happens and this and then this occurs, and so just like reflecting personally to it all that also just reminds me that humans are so durable but also so fragile, and life is. That's just what life is, right? It's this ebb and flow of, I don't know, I guess, like, good or bad. And it helps me appreciate life a little bit more and hold the people that I, you know, that I feel dearly about and love much closer because you just never know what can happen. So I'm always constantly reminded of that.
1: What advice uh, would you give to, um, like, hikers uh, and the people who enjoy the trails and the waterfalls? from your perspective as a rescuer
2: yeah i think just number 1 is like really respecting nature right nature is this beauty but also nature is not forgiving nature just does right and you have to be very mindful of that um i think for just those who are outdoor recreating just making sure that you're just always come prepared because you just never know you just never know making sure that you have like a fully charged cell phone, making sure that you have some sort of headlight or flashlight, making sure you have extra food, extra water, layers as well, making sure you have a jacket or an insulating type of coat. Um, Just basic things like having a lighter, having like a knife, having some sort of um, small Mylar blanket type of thing, just the basics like that where you may not use it, but when you need it, you're gonna be really, 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 really glad that you have it. <laughs> um, and and also letting people know like where you're going. Right, if you're going to go to this spot, let someone know. Like, hey, I'm gonna go up to this trail. I expect to be home by ten. You know, I'll check in. Just letting someone know. Because then, if you do need rescuing. It, we can get to you a lot faster. or We can get to you a lot faster. My passion surrounds around public health goes with what we call the social determinants or like the social drivers of health. You know why? When we look at life expectancy, how come if you live um, on the east side, Salt Lake City Avenues area, up in that area, you live over a decade longer than if you live in South Salt Lake, and that's a four and a half mile distance. People can walk that. So if you live this way, you live eleven years longer than if you live this way, four and a half miles. And just exploring that question more, right? Driving down to to looking at what influences these life expectancy differences and they're not always like as clear. We have to think about the whole just every aspect of life, maybe starting with education, right? When we're looking at where all of the, you know, reputable schools are, where all the schools with like the IB programs, for example, or the, you know, the best teachers. Right. I mean, if you even looking at IB programs where you can go to a school and graduate with an associate's degree out of high school. You will not find any on the West side. Why is that? Right? When you're looking at healthcare, where where are all the major hospital systems at? Not on the West side. Even when you go to the Smiths downtown versus the Smiths down the street from my house in West Valley, it's still Smiths. But how come the produce is different? How come the offerings of uh, the food choices are different? You know, I mean, even looking at this whole... Um, east side versus west side type of thing right You're on the east side of state street versus the west side of state street and and those are the things that really make an impact on health and even thinking back to to my like elementary days where you know my school we would have five six year old textbooks ripped up um you know not enough computers for anyone we wouldn't have ac in the summer we had to open the windows but then i think of my friends experiences And they went to schools, elementary schools on the east side. We're all in sixth grade. But how come they have the newest books? How come each student has a computer? How come they have AC? And those things are what influences health overall. Because, um, you know, if kids don't do well in school, right, then that can influence their ability to go to pursue a higher education, which we know can lead to, um, you know, financial wellness. And with finances, finances don't, by happiness, but they do buy food and they do buy housing, they do buy health insurance and they do buy clothing and they do buy just the basic necessities. And so, really, that's that's really my work is trying to help decision makers help people see these social drivers and how they make such an impact on someone's health. And not only that, is really advocating for the community a lot of times when we look at community, especially in the public health realm or a lot of other realms, where I was like, what are community needs? Let's do a needs assessment. Let's do a needs assessment. But we don't realize that community has so many assets. Right? The community has so many assets. There's so much people, so many people that know this, that do this amazing work, that get, you know, what's going on, that know the solutions. But yet we're not, you know, we're not giving them like a spot at the table and Really, my goal is to be able to take not only my lived experiences, but working with the community to be able to have the community begin to take more lead on some of these efforts, right? It's not, it's not having a community person at the table. It's having the community be the table and everyone else standing around community. And then the community drives us. And then we, as public health professionals, as education professionals, as healthcare, as business, support whatever it is that, you know, we're going through, and And I think that's where my, my public health passion lies, um, just connecting, you know, my experiences with now my position and, you know, um, and being able to, like, leverage that to just better support um, our communities across, across the valley and hopefully across the state as well.
1: Yeah, that's Thank awesome. You. I really appreciate the, your uh, suggestion for, like, assets, Assessment mm-hmm. instead of uh, needs assessment. Yeah. It, um, yeah, I heard that um, repeatedly that you know, uh, the community has assets to offer. There's so it's, many. It's,
2: yeah. Yeah, so many assets, and you know we're like, looking what, uh, we're looking at what the community doesn't have, but we need to start looking at what the community has, and when we start looking at that, you're gonna realize the community has so much. And it's really, you know, uh, COVID has brought light to that where it's, you know, there's, um, you know, the health departments were trying to set up these clinics and no one was coming to them. But then they really, you know, and then the community was like, let us set up the clinics. Masses of people came out, right? Because these people that are setting up the clinics are your neighbors, are people who speak your language, people who look like you. You know, just your friends and aunties, the people that you run with to the grocery store and we need to realize that more and use that as an example of, okay, we've seen how, what community can do in terms of the COVID response. Let's apply this to other areas and work with our assets that we have and support that.
0: We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Kevin for sharing his stories with us today. And we'd also like to thank the Whiting Foundation for supporting this project through a Whiting Foundation public engagement grant. Uh, The seed grant that they provided makes this whole thing possible so that we can share these stories with you. Thanks for joining us today and for connecting with the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College. We're located in Salt Lake City on the traditional and ancestral lands of the Goshute Shoshone and Ute peoples. Uh, we also need to extend thanks to the mountains, which we call our home, the valley that's our home, uh, the sun that's providing a super hot summer. Careful out there with fire, folks! And finally, thanks to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for our theme music. We'll see you next week. Bye. Be fun.